Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we meld with the finest minds in networking. Today, we have the one person you can blame for all of your internet problems, Vince Cerf. So grab a pile of cookies and hang on tight as we reveal another piece of networking history. Well, good morning, Ben. I think you're in Reston, right? Or Washington, D.C. area, that's correct? That is correct. I'm in my Reston office now. Okay, well, Jordan was really worried when we got up at this time of the morning, thinking you might be on the West Coast. I, I, I thought you were really dedicated. Like, <laughs> and then we, saw, then we saw you in a suit, and we thought, West Coast and a suit. Wow. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I was up at about 6 o'clock this morning, East Coast time, which would have been 3 o'clock in the morning, West Coast time. So uh, this is all perfectly normal for me. Yeah, it's about the time I get up, too, is around 6. So, Vint, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I have a question for you, because um, we heard this thing from Steve Crocker, and we want to know more about it. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine a couple of stories that Steve would tell. That's, uh, well, we'll wait and see which one he told you. Uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm actually started, I was born at an early age uh, <laughs> at Yale, in Yale Hospital uh, in 1943. Uh, but at the end of World War II, my family moved to Los Angeles. So I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, Valley boy. Uh, went to Van Nuys High School uh, with Steve Crocker and John Postel um, in the 1960s and did my undergraduate work at Stanford in mathematics. And I went to work for IBM in Los Angeles for a couple of years and then returned to school at UCLA, where my thesis advisor and Steve Crocker's advisor, Jerry Estrin, uh, did my PhD there, but got involved in the ARPANET project uh, in Len Kleinrock's uh, Network Measurement Center uh, in the late 1960s. Uh, finished my PhD, went up to Stanford University, joined the faculty in 72 and uh, began working with Bob Kahn in 1973 on what became the internet. Uh, and uh, Bob Kahn had gone from Bolt, Baranek and Newman, where he had been one of the primary architects of the ARPANET project, uh, to, uh, to join ARPA in late 1972. And uh, although the original program that he was going to be involved with didn't materialize, he ended up um, pursuing the idea of command and control using computers. As, uh, as part of that process. So that meant um, communications, it meant use of computers for planning, uh, simulations, a variety of other possible applications, but it also meant putting computers uh, in mobile vehicles, in ships at sea, and in aircraft. The ARPANET had been built out of dedicated phone lines connecting the interface message processors, the packet switches to each other. So it was a homogeneous network with heterogeneous computers. Uh, that were linked together, quite a different variety of machines uh, in those days. Uh, so when Bob showed up in my lab at Stanford and said, we have a problem, and my first reaction was, what do you mean, we? And he said, well, uh, we've, got, we've got this packet radio system for mobile communications, uh, which Bob had been developing, and uh, we have a packet satellite system, which would uh, be serviceable for uh, linking ships at sea to each other or, or ship to shore. Uh, and we have the ARPANET. And somehow we have to link all three of those kinds of networks together. And oh, by the way, in May of 73, Bob Metcalf and uh, David Boggs uh, developed the Ethernet, which is another, yet another packet switch technology, which of course, uh, as everyone knows, has become extremely popular uh, and uh, widespread uh, and has extended all the way up to and including uh, things like Wi-Fi and optical fiber networks. So we effectively had four different kinds of packet switching uh, system to interconnect. And the question was how to do that in a way that uh, looked transparent and uniform to the hosts that were connected on these various uh, local networks. So uh, Bob and I spent about six months in this, from the spring to the fall of 1973 considering how to do that, and we ended up with uh, what became TCP IP. We started with just the TCP protocols, but uh, in the course of evolution of that system, we split the internet protocol off from the TCP part in order to do real-time communication. So I spent uh, several years at Stanford working very hard with a team there on the details of the um, TCP IP protocols. 
and then in 75 began uh, implementing uh, with colleagues at University College London and uh, at uh, Bolt, Baranek and Newman. The one thing I want to point out is, is that in these early stages, 74 was when the detailed specs were being, first first complete specs for TCP were being done. I had colleagues from, uh, from England, uh, from Japan, from France, from Norway, uh, at Stanford or working remotely. Um, and eventually the Internet Network Working Group included people from Germany and Italy and other parts of Europe. So I want people to understand that this was very much an international activity in the very earliest stages. It was not purely uh, a U.S. development, even though certainly Bob Kahn and I can claim a certain amount of credit for the initiation of this work. So by, the, uh, by 1976, uh, I moved from Stanford to the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency to run all of the Internet programs, whether it was packets, uh, satellite packets, uh, radio, uh, Internet, uh, and uh, security, network security, were all part of my uh, portfolio. I stayed there until 1982, and at the end of 82, uh, the Internet was essentially turned on. We, we basically abandoned the ARPANET NCP protocols and uh, essentially forced every, every computer on all the various uh, DARPA-sponsored networks to run TCP IP so that the ensemble could be treated as a single uh, network, what looked like a single network. At that same time, beginning of 83, we split the ARPANET into two parts. One was called MILNET and one was called ARPANET. The MILNET was for the military. Uh, specifically, and ARPANET continued as a research uh, substrate uh, until 1990 when the ARPANET was retired. Um, I realize we don't want to go through 40 years of history year by year here, but I do want to draw attention to the fact that uh, as the Internet began to uh, demonstrate its functional capability, uh, the research community began to get interested specifically at the National Science Foundation. So in 1982, uh, NSF sponsored the CSNet, Computer Science Network. Eventually, uh, in the mid-1980s, NSF decided to uh, underwrite the cost of a backbone network called NSFNet. And in those same years, the Department of Energy did the Energy Sciences Network, uh, and uh, NASA did the NASA Science Internet. So we had ARPANET and uh, ESNet and NSINet uh, and um, and I, I get all four of them, ARPANET, NSINET, ESNET, uh, and, uh, and the RM. I still, I still got that wrong, didn't I? ARPANET, ESNET, NSINET, and NSFNET. So we had four backbone networks uh, in the Internet system in the mid to late 1980s. In 1988, uh, I realized that the general public would not get access to the Internet unless we turned this into an economic engine that was somehow self-supporting. So I lobbied for permission to connect the MCI mail system, which I had built for MCI in 1983, uh, to the Internet as an experiment. Of course, the reason I wanted to do that was not only to see whether the MCI mail system could interoperate with the uh, internet email, but I also wanted to break the barrier uh, uh, that said no commercial traffic was permitted on the government-sponsored backbones, because MCI mail was a commercial product. So they allowed me to make that interconnection. We set up a gateway in 1989, and several things happened uh, in consequence. The first thing that happened is that the other commercial email carriers like Telemail and Tele Telemail from Telenet, OnTime from TimeNet, CompuServe, uh, and others uh, insisted on being connected to the Internet as well uh, because they saw that as a, uh, a useful thing to offer their customers. What they hadn't anticipated, I think, is that having connected to the Internet, all of those heretofore separated email services were suddenly interconnected with each other. So everyone on all those commercial mail systems could talk to each other through the Internet protocols. The second thing that happened is that in that same year, three commercial internet service providers popped up. One was called UUNet, one was called PSINet, one was called SurfNet out in San Diego. So you can um, count the commercial launch of internet in 1989. About that same time, interestingly, uh, Tim Berners-Lee was starting to get interested in his work at CERN 
which eventually became the World Wide Web, which she released in something like December of 1991. Uh, ironically, this was not a sponsored project at CERN, although CERN now proudly claims to be the birthplace of the World Wide Web. Uh, this was being done as a Skunk Works uh, operation. Uh, it got announced and released in 91. Not too many people noticed this, uh, except that Mark Andreessen and Eric Bina at the National Center for Supercomputer Applications built a graphical uh, browser uh, program called Mosaic. And it turned the internet into what looked like a colorful magazine because the web pages were formatted text and uh, images and eventually streaming audio and video. So uh, the uh, Mosaic application was a real trigger that excited a lot of people to make use of the internet as a mechanism for sharing information, which of course is what Jim Berners-Lee was uh, hoping for. Um, a man named Jim Clark, who had started Silicon Graphics, something that uh, your listeners may remember was a key component for computer-generated imagery, uh, graphics uh, for movies, um, saw this mosaic thing and said, understood that that was a big deal. Went out to uh, NCSA and, and brought Mark and Dreesen and others to the West Coast to the Silicon Valley and started Netscape Communications, which eventually uh, created the Netscape Navigator, uh, a very popular commercial browser. So by the uh, early 1990s, mid-1990s, uh, a whole bunch of things are happening. First of all, lots of people are pouring content into the network, so much so that nobody could find anything, which led to the need for search engines. And we had AltaVista, we had uh, Yahoo coming out of Stanford, we had Google in 1998 also coming out of Stanford. Uh, so there's this rapid proliferation uh, of content, a rapid proliferation of networks around the world, most of them starting in academic settings and then spreading uh, into the commercial sector. So by the, um, by the time Netscape Communications went public uh, uh, in 1995, its stock went through the roof and the dot boom was on. Ironically, about that same time, NSF shut down the NSFNet backbone because it said they didn't need it anymore. You could buy commercial service. So the uh, intermediate level networks that serve the academic community and, and NSF supported academic community were interconnected through NSF sponsored network access points, or we call them internet exchange points today, and the NSF net was retired. ARPANET had been retired in 1990. The ES net and the NASA Science Internet continued to operate, uh, and of course other networks are proliferating around the world. So by the end of uh, 1999, beginning of 2000, we have this vibrant uh, internet activity going on. And then the dot bust happens because so much money had been thrown at companies that were apparently part of internet, uh, but didn't have good business models that the venture capital guys suddenly discovered that uh, some of the companies they'd invested in didn't work. And so there was a dot bust around April or so of uh, 2000. But the internet continued to grow after that, and of course here it is, 2018. We think that by the end of this year, about 50% of the world's population will be online. Uh, and of course, as the chief internet evangelist at Google, I still have another 50% of the world's population to convert. So that's kind of a, a rapid, I hope, rapid summary of, uh, of the internet's evolution. One thing I will say, if you want to get into it, is that this was not a slam dunk. And in addition to going through four iterations of the uh, internet protocols uh, leading up to their standardization around 1981 or so, um, there was a huge battle with uh, a number of other networking technologies, the most visible of which was the Open Systems Interconnection Model, OSI, which was being sponsored by the International Standards Organization, primarily in Europe. That battle went on from 1978 to around 1993 when the US government finally conceded that the OSI and the TCP IP protocols were comparable and therefore it was uh, legitimate for uh, companies and the government to use TCP IP in lieu of OSI. But that was a 15 year uh, argument that went on uh, for uh, almost a decade and a half. Uh, there were also other uh, packet switching technologies that came along, for example, frame relay and ATM, asynchronous transfer mode, Every time a new packet switching technology came along, everybody said, that's the end of the internet. 
And of course, what we all know is that IP was designed to run on top of anything. And so it basically uh, was uh, put down on top of optical fiber, MPLS, uh, you know, packet, uh, sorry, frame relay, uh, and ATM. IP just runs over everything, including you, if you're not paying attention. So uh, that's, that turned out to be a persistent um, element of the internet design, was always sweeping new technologies into supporting IP. And of course, on IP doesn't know what it's doing. It, does, it doesn't know what the applications are. And all it knows is it's moving bits back and forth. And so when new applications came along, the basic IP layer didn't have to change at all. TCP didn't have to change. New protocols adjacent to TCP came along, like uh, you, you know, user datagram protocols for real-time communication, which was introduced around 1977 when we realized that uh, reliable communication, although very valuable from the TCP, was not, uh, in fact, desirable for real-time communication, voice, video, radar tracking, things of that sort. So we continue to expand the layer of protocols sitting on top of IP. And of course, protocols lying above that, like HTTP, uh, have come along to support yet newer applications. So this layering structure has made it possible to grow a new functional capability in the internet without disrupting either lower level layers or disrupting other layers which have already been put into use. Okay, that's a long, long answer. But that gives you a capsule. Yeah, that's great. So you just talk about layering systems. So when you split up TCP and IP, um, now I remember that the D, you know I have in the back of my mind DoD model versus OSI model, and that there was this thing going on in Boston. I think it was around the OSI model being the only thing presented and that kind of stuff. So, just going back to the layering concept, when you split up TCP and IP, what were you trying to solve? I mean, was there a particular challenge you were trying to get to, and was that really focused around like how did that interact with the DOD and the OSI models is that I guess that's before so they came out of that but how did that work? Well first of all let me point out the layering uh, was uh, introduced in the ARPANET program the, um, when uh, Steve Crocker who led created and led the network working group uh, helped to develop the uh, NCP protocols uh, which was the, uh, the layer in the ARPANET system, which uh, turned into TCP for the internet, uh, or was replaced uh, by TCP in the internet. Um, so the layering construct was part of the ARPANET experience. We ingested that uh, in the internet design deliberately. So we had uh, essentially the same kinds of layers. We had the physical layer, we had a link layer, we had a network layer. We actually had two network layers because in the early days of the internet, each network that was part of the internet had its own internal network function, had its own addressing system, had its own routing system. Those networks didn't know that they were part of the internet. And so we introduced uh, an encapsulation and decapsulating, uh, decapsulating scheme so the hosts that were on any of those uh, networks, like the ARPANET or the packet radio net or the packet satellite net, the hosts knew they were on the internet. The networks they were attached to did not. So each host would put its TCP uh, packet into an envelope that looked like any ordinary packet for each one of those, uh, those uh, bearing networks. So for packet radio, you took an internet packet and you stuck it inside the payload of a packet radio packet, or a packet satellite packet, or the ARPANET packet. Uh, and those would be routed to gateways, we call them routers today, but they were gateways to other networks if the traffic had to go from the originating network through other networks to get to the destination. So when uh, a packet came to a gateway on the ARPANET, for example, going into the packet radio net, the gateway would open up the ARPANET packet throw away the outer layer uh, and pull out the payload and look at the internet packet that's inside the payload and say, where is this actually going? And it would say which network it was going to. That gateway would pick which network to send it to next and encapsulate the internet packet in the next um, network's packet format payload and send it on its way until finally the packet would pop out at some destination host. So the gateways knew about the internet and the hosts knew about the internet, but the networks didn't know about the internet. The Ethernet <laughs> didn't know, the packet radio net didn't know. And that was uh, a, 
a really powerful way of allowing new networks to be added to the system and new technologies to be added to lower layered so that you didn't have to tell them about what was going on above. Uh, so layering was something we adopted uh, from the ARPANET project. The OSI system also adopted the layering concept. It's just that they had more layers than the internet design. The internet design had about four layers. Uh, it was, you know, the physical layer, uh, the link layer, the internal network layer, the internet protocol layer, the internet layer, and then uh, TCP, transport layer, and then applications on top of that. Uh, the OSI guys tried to be more refined, I guess, and so they had seven layers, including an application layer, presentation layer. Um, however, they spent most of their time specifying things but not building anything, while the guys in the internet world built stuff and then specified what worked. And so I think we got that uh, more prag pragmatically uh, correct. Speaking of pragmatic... <laughs> well, no, I'm sorry, let me, I'm sorry, let me just ahead. explain. You said, why did we split IP off? I literally meant what I said earlier. When we were looking for real-time communication, we knew that TCP, which insisted on retransmitting, filtering duplicates, putting things in the right order, would not work well if packet losses occurred, for example, and you were trying to do voice communication, you would increase the delay between the speaker and the listener uh, because of the retransmissions. And so we said, you know what, for those applications, it's okay to lose data. Just, we'll just resend. So if it was a radar tracking system, you don't care where the missile was, you wanna know where it is now. Uh, for voice communications, if you lose a packet and you hear a pop or a squeak or something, you just repeat. Somebody can say, I didn't hear that, please say again. Same with video, if you miss a frame, it doesn't matter, another frame is coming. So we deliberately introduced uh, the IP layer as a substrate for real-time communication while putting TCP adjacent to what became the user datagram protocol. That makes sense. Uh, speaking of, uh, you know, like this, this idea of pragmatic design, so many of the things that were designed in those in, in the early days of the internet, even, you know, pre-internet, we're talking specifically about TCP IP. Um, we, we have encountered and have to modify because of scaling. There was just no anticipation of it growing to, to the scale at which it grew into that we see today. And so in TCP IP, I mean, it, it, this is one of those things that has scaled incredibly well. Was that like, were there intentional design um, components that you were thinking about scaling to this type of degree, or was that just a, a convenient um, a consequence of the fact that it was like a host-to-host -host type protocol? Um, a happy accident? No, it was very deliberate, uh, although we still got the scaling numbers wrong. Um, when we first did the design in 1973, Bob Kahn and I were asked ourselves, you know, first of all, this has to work globally because it's being designed for the Defense Department. It has to operate everywhere in the world. So we abandoned any idea of having addressing dependent on what country you happen to be in, unlike the telephone network. Uh, so we didn't have country codes. Now, later, of course, with the domain name system coming along, there were country codes, but there were also uh, generic top-level domains like .com, .net, and .org that are non-national in character. But the lower-level addressing structure was absolutely non-national. It was purely topological. Uh, second, uh, after having built the ARPANET, uh, when Bob and I were thinking our way through the internet protocols, uh, we thought, well, let's see, how many networks will there be per country? And we guessed two, <laughs> because it was expensive you know, to build a national scale network, so we thought there should be some competition. And then we wondered how many countries there were, and we didn't, there wasn't any Google to ask, so we didn't know the answer to that. Um, and we guessed at 128 because that was a power of two and that was a useful number to you know, deal with. So we guessed 256 networks in the world, um, you know, national scale networks, and then uh, asked ourselves how many hosts per network and we gave a big number, 16 million, figuring that would be more than enough given that, network, that computers at the time were big, expensive million dollar pieces of equipment in air-conditioned rooms that didn't get up and move around. Of course, today we carry our own computers in our you know, pockets. So um, the original design could have supported 4.3 billion terminations if it were densely populated. At the time, remember 1973, the only one network had been built and the packet radio and packet satellite were just sort of emerging. So um, 4.3 billion seemed like more than enough for an experiment. Um, and, and I thought, honestly, at the time I was running the program at ARPA, 
that um, that if this experiment worked, if we could demonstrate that TCP/IP actually did what we hoped it could do, that it could sweep in new networks and new technologies, run new protocols, run new applications, that we would do a production version, having demonstrated with the experimental system that you could do it. Well, uh, by 1989, uh, in my zeal uh, to get uh, the internet into commercial operation, uh, I skipped the production step, and and we essentially went right into the use of uh, TCP/IP version four, the 32-bit address space, um, in the commercial systems. And it was in the uh, early 1990s, around 92 or so, uh, that we all realized that we were going to run out of uh, network uh, address space because of the proliferation of local area networks, for example. And at that point, the Internet Engineering Task Force began the task of developing a larger address space for the Internet layer. Uh, and that took about four years of considerable argumentation, uh, ending up with 128-bit uh, address space for the IP version 6. And I thought that it would be intuitively obvious to everybody at that point that being early days in the internet, that we should immediately adopt IPv6 so we would be assured of having address space uh, for the foreseeable future. Of course, everybody else was saying, eh, don't need it. I've got enough IPv4 address space. Why should I bother implementing this other thing? So here it is 20 years later, 2018, uh, 22 years later, uh, and we really do need to move to IPv6 even though we have to support the IPv4 uh, over the protocol you know, concurrently. Today, there's probably 25% uh, or 30% penetration globally of IPv6, so we still have ways to go. Uh, in some parts of the world and on some networks, both protocols are available 100%. In other places, you can only get v4 and not v6. And there are a bunch of uh, tricks to try to... You can't map 128 bits into a 32-bit address space, but there are a bunch of mechanisms that look like network, network address translation to allow v4 and v6 to sort of interwork. It's a terrible kludge. The correct thing um, is to just implement v6 and get over it. I suppose if we'd been smarter, we would have tried to figure out a way to make v4 and v6 interoperate. But at the time, it wasn't obvious how the hell you would get uh, refer to 128-bit address with a 32-bit header. Uh, so, uh, so we have this uh, this struggle to get v6 uh, implemented, but I will say that everything else is scaled quite well. Uh, there are, as you know, hundreds of thousands of networks in the system, and the speeds of the backbone have gone up from 50 kilobits a second on the ARPANET to uh, 50 gigabits a second, or 100 gigabits a second, and soon to be 400 gigabits a second. The TCP protocols have been stable for all that time. The flow control mechanisms have been elaborated over time. Uh, Van Jacobson, who's now an employee here at Google, uh, has introduced uh, repeatedly several improvements in flow control to avoid congestion uh, and buffer bloat and other uh, phenomena. Uh, so his most recent version, BBR, is quite powerful in terms of managing uh, the flow control problem at these very, very high uh, speeds. So on the whole, the system has scaled extremely well, and Bob Kahn and I are very happy about that. So, so you mentioned that there were four versions of TCP/IP. I bet most people aren't aware of that. What were some of the major differences between them? Uh, well, in the original first two uh, had only the one TCP protocol and did not split out the IP functions until around 1977 or so, and uh, several people, uh, John Postel, David Reed, Danny Cohen, probably some others, argued the need for this real-time capability. Uh, and others uh, among those also argued for an increased address space to deal with local area networking, but as I say, that became a big issue around 1992 or so. But by, the, by 1977, we realized we had to split the IP layer out and uh, use it as a substrate for unreliable but, but low latency uh, communication. Uh, the first two versions, I know the differences between version one and version two of TCP are, I don't remember much in the way of detail anymore uh, about the differences. Uh, there were uh, weird things like uh, <clears throat> end of letter, you know, rubber EOL, and a few other things to try to figure out how to distinguish between 
underlying packet uh, uh, transport, the, you know, the TCP carrying these packets, and the next layer up, which wanted to have a semantic meaning to chunks of information being sent. And we were trying to figure out how to balance uh, those two concepts, one which is chunking uh, for, uh, or segmenting of, of TCP transport in order to deal with uh, flow control, buffer management, and things of that sort. But then the logical communication uh, needed to be uh, distinguishable at the next layers up. Eventually, we decided to leave TCP as a continuous byte stream. Uh, another thing that we introduced is fragmentation because we were worried that some networks wouldn't be able to carry large packets and they might have to chop them up into smaller pieces. And we didn't want that to become a really uh, complicated mess for the receiving host. So we had this fairly elaborate scheme for allowing a packet to be broken in the middle of transport through multiple networks, received at the, at the other end, looking as if it had been broken up in the first place by the original sender so that it didn't look any different. You just glued everything together in the right order. Turned out that that wasn't necessarily the best arrangement because the fragmentation uh, led to various kinds of, uh, uh, I would say, lockup, uh, where you know you had a bunch of partially uh, reassembled string and then you ran out of buffer space. And so you had a sort of Mexican standoff. We had that problem in the ARPANET as well, but uh, for somewhat different reasons than fragmentation. So um, there were changes that were made. The most dramatic, of course, is the splitting of IP off. And there were some details that led to the transition from version 3 to version 4. Uh, on, the, on the whole, I would say, though, that the basic structure of TCP IP was pretty well set uh, once the split was made with version 3. Uh, now, some people may wonder what happened to version 5. Uh, that turned out to be an attempt to use the internet protocol layer for uh, packet video and uh, packet voice, um, and, and in fact, some thinking about multicast and the like. And it didn't scale. It just did not scale. So we abandoned version 5. And the next thing we had to do was expand the address space, and that turned out to be version 6. So V5, is that somewhere around the range of ATM in that time frame where people were still coming back and saying circuit switches are, you know, go, trying to make this intermediate mode between circuit switched and packet switched networks? This seems well, that, to be like what ATM was trying to do. That's a very interesting question. And I think version 5 was earlier than that. In the early okay. 1980s, uh, we were experimenting with packet voice and packet video. And... Uh, my recollection is that uh, even though we had split the IP layer out uh, and we had UDP available, um, there were things that we wanted to do that uh, were specific to voice and video that um, we weren't com conveniently able to do, at least didn't think we were conveniently able to do, uh, with the existing IPv4 uh, packet structure. Uh, in the end, uh, we ended up putting uh, real-time protocol on top of UDP. So, uh, and I, you know, the, I think of ATM as coming in the late 80s. Does that that seems seem right, right to me. Or early 90s or something. Yeah, that seems right to me too, late 80s to early 90s. Yeah, like so it. I think that the V5 was earlier than that, probably by, uh, you know, six or seven years earlier. But it sounds like it was trying to solve the same sorts of problems, just ATM was trying to solve it at a layer below, or trying to take over IP to do the same thing, or to solve the same problem. Yes, I mean, the, the IPv5 was sort of trying to do, you might say it was trying to do what ATM was doing, which is some kind of a real-time interleaving. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it didn't work very well. So tell us something about the open window <laughs> and open climbing window. on Steve's shoulders to get lab time. <laughs> oh, oh, geez. Okay, all right. So it's, it's 1960, and we're both in high school, Van Nuys High. Steve is, is one class behind me. He gets permission to use the computers at UCLA. The chairman of the department, Mike Melkinoff, recognized Steve as a brilliant uh, young man, a tremendously uh, capable mathematician, uh, and, and extremely interested in computing. 
So Steve got permission to use the computers at UCLA. And so we would go typically in the evening uh, to use a Bendix G15 paper tape driven machine. Uh, and we were interested in transcendental functions and things like that. Uh, but one weekend uh, we showed up and the door was locked. And of course we didn't have a key to get into the building. But we did have permission to use the computers, so I noticed that there was a window on the second floor that was open. And so I climbed up on Steve's shoulders, and as Steve tells it, he says he's thinking, we're not really going to do this, are we? <laughs> uh, so I climbed up, got into the window, and opened the door, and then we taped the door open so that we wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have to climb in through the window every time we went in and out of the building. And I think as, as Steve tells the story, and he does it better than I do, uh, during the Watergate break-in uh, in the 1974 area, um, he, he remembers re recalling taping the door of the building and thinking, God, what if the police had shown up and discovered <laughs> that we taped the door open uh, at UCLA, would we have been arrested? Of course, we did have permission to use the computers, but that didn't necessarily give us permission to break into the building. <laughs> now, now, just to extend this a little bit, uh, during, I think it was uh, Jerry Estrin's 90th birthday or, or whatever it was, 50th anniversary at UCLA or something, a lot of us gathered together, and Steve and I discovered that the building that had housed the machine we were using was going to be torn down, Engineering One. And we thought, why don't we recreate our episode and catch that on video? <laughs> so we re so we recreated the whole event, and incredibly, it was the same window, and it was still unlocked. Uh, <laughs> you know, fifty years later, and it, it was tempting to send a note to UCLA saying, uh, "Dear sirs, your security hasn't improved over the last fifty years." <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh man, is there any particular project you worked on? that you look back on, uh, get a bit more excited about the work that you did than maybe something else? Is there something that stands out as kind of like, this was, this was really cool, I'm glad I was part of this? Well, I was, there are two that immediately come to mind. Uh, the MCI mail project was pretty amazing because it was a, it, we did it in nine months. Uh, the system was, was designed to, inter, to use email, but specifically to interact with other email systems. So we had designed it with the idea in mind that it could interconnect to other uh, email services, we included telex in the in the design. So everybody who got an MCI mail address also had an implicit telex address. So the old 19th century telex system, uh, teletype uh, system, could uh, could interconnect with uh, MCI mail. You could exchange traffic back and forth. Um, we uh, also allowed postal addresses in the MCI mail system. So that if you were corresponding with someone who didn't have email. We would print your message out for you, put it in an envelope and mail it. And if you told us to do it overnight, we'd put it in a bright you know, orange envelope and we would send it you know, uh, through FedEx uh, or one of the other uh, overnight service providers. Uh, later, the system was extended to do fax as well. So that if you um, had to communicate with somebody using fax messages, they could respond yeah, with a fax and it would show up as an email. We included digital signatures, literally, not, not scanned, not, not digital signatures in the cryptographic sense, but scanned uh, signatures. So we could print on letterhead. You could up, up, upload your letterhead to us, and if you asked us to send a letter with a signature on it, we could literally print the letter with the signature in it and then put it in the mail and send it. It was a very advanced system for its time. went into operation in September of 1983. And the team that put that together still meets every year now just to see how everybody is doing, even though the system was retired in 2003. Um, in fact, I was the guy that retired the MCI mail system, uh, having rejoined uh, MCI in 1994 as their senior VP for engineering. Um, so that's one project. The second one, which is still ongoing, but was started in 1998, 20 years ago, is an extension of the internet to run across the solar system. So this interplanetary internet uh, is an ambitious idea intended to support manned and robotic space exploration to support, uh, in particular, uh, exploration of Mars and the outer planet. Uh, the program began in 1998, just after the Pathfinder mission successfully landed in 1997 on Mars. Uh, I got together with a team at JPL, uh, with, with, with which team I am still working, 
when the uh, rovers landed on Mars in 2004 in January, uh, the original design was to have the data transmitting back directly from the surface of Earth to the Deep Space Network, these big 70-meter dishes that are in Canberra, Australia, Goldstone, California, and Madrid, Spain. Um, the radios that were to be used overheated, and uh, for reasons I don't uh, think I ever knew, but uh, they were only rated at 28 kilobits a second from the surface of Mars. Uh, so there was a huge issue because if we kept running those radios at full bore, um, we ran the risk of either wrecking the radios or possibly damaging equipment on board uh, the, uh, the two rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. Um, however, one of the engineers at JPL noted that there's an X-band radio on board the uh, rovers, which couldn't get all the way back to Earth, but it could go up to the orbiting satellites, which had been sent earlier in order to map the surface of Mars to figure out where we should send the rovers. So uh, we reprogrammed the rovers and the orbiters to do store and forward relay using a prototype uh, protocol uh, of what has eventually now become the interplanetary bundle protocol. So this um, CCSDS file delivery protocol, which is the proto a, a prototype of the interplanetary network protocols, is on board the uh, rovers and the orbiters and has been delivering all the data back from Mars, from the rovers, from the Mars Science Laboratory, from the Phoenix lander on, at the North Pole uh, since 2004. During that uh, period from 2004 to the present, uh, we have evolved uh, the protocols uh, to this point now where they're becoming standardized by the Consultative Committee on Space Data Systems. The Internet Engineering Task Force has access to the bundle protocols. Their source code is available on GitHub. Uh, we are operating the new protocols on the International Space Station. We've tested the protocols uh, using laser communication bounced off the moon at 600 megabits a second. We've done real-time communication from the International Space Station to a rover in Germany being steered in real-time by an astronaut on board the ISS, emulating a situation where the astronauts are in orbit around Mars, for example, doing direct control of a rover, which you can't do from Earth because of the round-trip time delay being anywhere from 7 to 40 minutes. So we are in the process now of putting a plan together to put all those protocols, the interplanetary protocols, on board all subsequent spacecraft launched in the United States. And we hope that our colleagues at the other spacefaring nations who are part of the Consultative Committee on Space Data Systems and who have helped us standardize these protocols will also adopt these protocols either for their initial mission requirement or when the mission is complete if the equipment is still operational, to put those interplanetary protocols on board and make those uh, spacecraft become nodes of an interplanetary backbone, which will expand over time. So we're pretty excited about that. Wow. That's phenomenal. I was going to say, for all you network engineers out there, you thought you could quit when you learned IP? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that is really, really cool. Well, you know, what, what the important lesson here is that uh, we were not afraid to accept the fact that the TCP protocols were incapable of, of expanding operation to deal with the sort of disruption of space communication, you know, because of planetary rotation and the like. Uh, and the variable and very long delays uh, as you go farther and farther out uh, into the solar system. So accepting the fact that your favorite uh, design doesn't work under certain conditions is a very important part of pragmatic engineering. <laughs> I mean, wow. it's shocking, really, that something you designed for one purpose doesn't immediately just work for another. <laughs> I, I say that you know, tongue in cheek because we do that all the time as engineers. We just always assume, oh, yeah, we'll just drop this no. down. Well, on the other hand, you have your, we all have our babies, right? The things that we created that we are proud of that we think should work for anything. Well, in fact, the internet protocols have worked for almost anything yep. uh, within the delay context and the error context uh, of a terrestrial system. Uh, yeah. So, so in, I have been surprised at how uh, flexible uh, the TCP/IP protocols have proven to be. Of course, there are other layers now that go up, and there are layers uh, adjacent to TCP for some particular applications. Nonetheless, uh, it was a bit of a surprise when it didn't work uh, for this extended environment. 
but we were all very comfortable saying, okay, you know, we'll just uh, let's look at the real conditions under that uh, under which this system has to work and design appropriately. I'm just wondering how to process and feel about the fact that you get better throughput to the moon via laser than I do my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is, there is something wrong with that. You're yes, right. Yes, there is something wrong with that. I think the solution is you need to get a laser and bounce it off the moon, Jordan. Maybe, maybe yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's interesting that you started working on mobility. And then you went through that phase where you said networks were going to be computers and, you know, computers that, that connect to the network are going to kind of be in these air conditioned rooms and not move. And you're back to working on mobility, basically. That's, that's, <laughs> so, correct. that's correct. So it's kind of odd to me because it kind of speaks to the difficulty. I mean, I went through some time when I was working on mobile ad hoc networks for the DRD and uh, some other countries. And I think it speaks to a lot of the problem that mobility induces in the yeah. network space. Yeah. And the importance of things like topological, understanding the network as a topological thing rather than your geographic and things like that. So, I mean, what do you think about that? That's an interesting. Uh, well, I have to tell you that um, I had misunderstood that uh, that the mobility problem had been solved. This is a, this is a, a pretty major uh, blunder. Um, at the time that we were splitting IP off from TCP, uh, we considered the possibility that we would have two headers, one at the TCP layer and one at the IP layer, and they would be distinct. Now, at the time that this was going on, it's 1976 or so, um, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, we have demonstrated that TCP works um, with the packet radio system. Uh, the only reason we're splitting the internet protocol out is to deal with real time. Uh, and so I assumed that the mobility problem had been solved because we were using TCP in the uh, interconnection between the uh, ARPANET and the packet radio system. It turns out we had not solved uh, that problem. Uh, and what we neglected, uh, what I neglected to think about is the possibility that while you are moving around, you might move from one packet radio network to a different one. This is the moral equivalent of roaming. And uh, of course, we didn't have roaming at the time because we didn't have mobiles at the time. And so I didn't think carefully about the fact that we might have multiple packet radio systems and we might move between them. And if you did that, you know, so anyway, so I didn't think, I didn't think about that. Uh, the problem that I overlooked then was that the if I had had a header for the TCP layer that was distinct from the header for the IP layer, then when you move to a different network, you might end up with a different IP address because the other network would have a, you know, a different address space. But you could associate the new IP address with the former uh, TCP connection if the TCP connection had an identifier. So if you had a source destination identifier for the TCP connection distinct from the source and destination identifier at the IP layer, you could go through a protocol, probably almost certainly involving cryptography, saying, hi, I'm the same guy, that, uh, I'm the same TCP connection, I'm just at a different, on a different network now at the IP layer but I'm still okay, here's a cryptographic exchange to prove to you that I'm the same guy. We didn't do that. I was worried about the header sizes, and so we created a pseudo header, you know, taking the TCP header and, and injecting it down into the IP layer. And that was a mistake. If, we had, if I had understood this uh, better, I would have separated the TCP layer identifier space, endpoint identifier space, from the routing space of IP. And that would have made uh, roaming a lot easier. So at the moment, it's still clumsy. This is, this is fixable, uh, but we need a shim layer to do that. So that was a, a kind of an embarrassing uh, mistake on my part, to not recognize this, that this particular problem was going to happen. The GSM guys, in fact, did figure that out. And you'll notice that the telephone number, which used to be, uh, used to be meaningful in the sense that it said where you physically were connected to the telephone network, 
no longer means that. It is simply an identifier, <clears throat> and you have to do a lookup of the mobile telephone number to find out what network the mobile is actually on now. And that's exactly the sort of thing that we might have had to do, except I was trying to do it in a more distributed way than the central lookup, which takes place uh, in the telephone network roaming system. Well, I think we've I think we've come full circle. I think we started the show saying that you know you were the person who can blame for all of our things that are difficult on the internet. We just now have identify. <laughs> well, several bad words occur to me right now. <laughs> so, uh, so, but, uh, but yeah, I think uh, we're we're getting to the end of the show here. Um, so I think we should, it's about time to wrap it up. Um, typically, we ask our guests uh, where people can find uh, the things that you're working on. Is there a place on the internet where people can go to see you know what's what's going on with you? now and the, and the things that you're doing? Yes, so let me give you several. First of all, if you want to go to ipnsig.org, that's Interplanetary Network Special Interest Group.org, uh, that's an internet society activity. If you go to peoplecentered.net, you'll see a people-centered internet activity that I'm engaged in. Uh, and if you go to uh, literally i4j.info, it's uh, innovation for jobs. You'll find yet another activity, which is looking at how innovation affects jobs, how it uh, in induces a need for reskilling, for example, over a career period. So those are three things that I'm in, uh, actively engaged in uh, outside of the Google framework. Excellent. Uh, I think we'll we'll forego our typical. We we tend to say where people can find us, but I think at this point everyone knows where to find Russ. Donald and myself. So I will say, though, uh, if you are looking for more episodes like this, where we are talking about the history of the internet and networking and how things came to be, uh, thenetworkcollective.com. Uh, there's lots of episodes there, also deep dives into different technologies and all kinds of other uh, interesting networking topics that happen there. Uh, thanks again, Vint, for taking the time and coming on and, and chatting with us. And we will see everyone next time. Happy to do it. Thanks so much for letting me be on the show. All right. Thank you. Thanks.